This is Dave's Daredevil Podcast, looking at a dark, avenging protector of New York City who isn't Daredevil. He's not even a Marvel character. What am I up to? Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder. You, of course, can call me Dave. And this is another rainy day episode. Basically an episode I recorded fairly on the fly, to be honest with you, just in case I should miss a week of production. Now, in the best case scenario, you're hearing many of these rainy day episodes in succession, which means I've hit a saturation point where I need to burn these off by the end of the year. That is best case scenario. That means the show has remained consistent and I got a little bit of vacation time in to boot. But that's what rainy day episodes are for. Should I somehow miss a week if I'm sick, if I have too many errands, etc., etc. As such, though, since this is kind of a thing and I'm packing back, you know, just a few episodes here and there, just in case, I did make some rules for them because I'm not sure when or where they're going to be released. The first rule is I will not cover an issue of Daredevil within a rainy day episode. The reason is simply that, well, the ebb and flow of the show week to week is covering Daredevil comics, and that's part of the main overall plan. For lack of a better explanation, the Daredevil comics themselves, the title, and any related miniseries or annuals, those are canon. Where these shows are meant to fit in, well, wherever they needed to. Secondly, they need to be self-contained. You won't get a two-part rainy day episode, not likely. Again, so I can plug them in wherever I want. Third rule is, needs to be moderate length material. Since I'm still producing episodes as these episodes are being produced, it doesn't do well to produce a rainy day episode and not get the main episode out. That's just logistics. And finally, based on a review I saw of the show, which described it as formulaic, which I liked and I appreciated because it's true and it will remain so, because that's the formula that works for me and it seems to work for the listeners, but because of that, when I do these episodes, since they're extra credit of sorts, I want to take the show off the beaten path. Cover some strange things, some, some things that don't necessarily directly relate to Daredevil. Somewhat tangential, if you will. This episode personifies that. It was something I really wanted to talk about and felt inspired to talk about. But I'm going to be clear right here up front. Daredevil's not going to really appear in this episode. On top of that, I'm not covering a single comic like I normally would. I'm talking about a series and a character overall, and it's not even a Marvel character. This time around, I'm actually talking about a character from Image Comics, who I feel is kind of a Daredevil analog, not in a straight-up way, but when we put them head-to-head, -head, you're going to see a lot of similarities. For me, I didn't necessarily jump directly into Image Comics. It wasn't necessarily my bag. However, my brother was into Image, specifically Spawn, and he managed to get me enticed into Spawn. No, I'm not talking about Spawn this week, I'm just telling you background. But Spawn led me to the character we're going to talk about, as well as Supreme, and was kind of how I got my footing in Image Comics. Now I'm going to be talking about 90s Image, which is very different from the modern day Image. Today's Image really has achieved the dream that the original Image started out as. Creator-owned comics that are critically acclaimed, such as Walking Dead, Invincible, so on and so forth. But in the 90s, well, 
Image has this reputation in this era. Most people you'll find will admit that Image is a guilty pleasure. They acknowledge all the faults of it and, well, it just seems to be a bit of a taboo to like this era and you know what, I think that's terrible. When talking about collecting comics and enjoying comics, liking comics, there should be only one rule. Like what you like, collect what you like. That's it. And that's kind of what I stick to. That's why I have a full run of ALF. Because I like ALF. I have no qualms admitting that. And Marvel put out a pretty funny series, if you must know. But this week I'm not talking about ALF. I'm not talking about Image as a whole. I'm going to be talking in just a moment about Shadowhawk. And admittedly, I'm going to be upfront with you. This is a very on-the-fly episode. I have very, very little in terms of notes. So it should be a fun experiment. Thank goodness for editing. But I'm going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back to talk about Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk. Well, hey there. This is Huckleberry Ham. And when I'm not busy making movies and TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out? Head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, no problem, fellers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to Magilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you... TwoTrueFreaks.com Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. And we are back. Now, most people remember the story of Image Comics. In the early 90s, artists Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, Jim Lee, and Jim Valentino decided to leave Marvel for pastures where they would own their own stuff. Now, the men had made quite a bit of money at Marvel. They were making more money for Marvel than they were receiving. There's a lot of criticism about the move they made. But one thing I must say, it was ballsy. Think about it. They had steady work at Marvel. And these are men with children and families that rely on a paycheck. To jump out and start all on your own, well, no matter how much buzz you have about your name, how much goodwill you may have made with fans, it was risky. And it succeeded overall. Image is still around today. It's still respected. Again, they do more indie stuff, more critically acclaimed stuff. But books like Savage Dragon and Spawn are still on the stands today. 
Now, in this first wave of image books in 1992 was Shadowhawk. Putting the books in sequence, the first book to hit stands in February of 1992 was Youngblood. Spawn followed in May. Both Savage Dragon and Wildcats hit in July. And in the same month, August of 1992, both Cyberforce and Shadowhawk hit the stands. While most of the other series I mentioned were ongoing, Shadowhawk was a four-issue miniseries. And it was based on a concept by Jim Valentino for The Fox. The Fox was an Archie Red Circle character, recently revived by Mark Wade in a miniseries. So I'm assuming if he was working on The Fox in this time frame, that must have been for Impact Comics, which had revived those Archie characters. The name Shadowhawk was originally going to be used for Starhawk when he was in a dark phase, but the name was rejected to be used for another character. So when his Fox concept got rejected, the name itself, Shadowhawk, was applied. Two rejected concepts put together to make something original. At this time, Valentino was primarily known as an artist for Guardians of the Galaxy and had done some steady work for Marvel. He wasn't quite as recognized or fond over as some of the other image talents, but he also served as their publisher. If you've never heard of Shadowhawk, let me give you the kind of elevator pitch that would have been presented with this first miniseries. The vigilante whose secret identity we do not know. We do not learn the secret identity in the first four issues, in the first miniseries. But this vigilante stalks the streets of New York. Not only does he fight bad guys, he makes sure they stay down because he breaks their backs, turning their bodies into a permanent prison. Now the look of Shadowhawk was interesting, very much of its time. The costume was silver and black, basically a black bodysuit with silver armor components. The mask was a swept back helmet, much like Wolverine's ears, and came to a beak-like point. On one arm, he wore a bulky box of what was served as his grappling line shooter. Now the look of Shadowhawk would evolve, as would the art style. While the armor starts out looking kind of cumbersome and not very comfortable, eventually you would see that grappling hook box turn into a simple shooter. You would see the mask evolve and become more expressive, such as having points that came down around the chin. You would see the shoulders go from 90s talk show host type shoulder pads into more pointed standalone pieces as well as elbow pieces. It would eventually become a sleek costume. And whether this was by design or accident, it perfectly set into what would become the story. In the first miniseries, we are introduced to Shadowhawk. We're in his thoughts, but we don't necessarily know who this is, of course. We're given many potential identities. It could be the angry former police officer, Christina Reed, who was rejected from the force because she used too much aggression. Or it could be this angry current police detective we didn't know. And tell you the truth, that frustrated me. It was supposed to be the unique calling card, but it ended up being, well, something that pushed me away from the character. Through the course of the story, which seemed to drag in the first four issues, I'll be honest with you. As overall whole, I like Shadowhawk, and I've grown to like the four-issue miniseries more and more. But at the time, it really felt... I mean, to be honest, it really does drag quite a bit. We see him go up against the Armored Arson, who, well, he's kind of like Pyro from the X-Men with bulkier armor. We also see these characters called the Regulators start to form, including Blackjack, a super strong bruiser with a ponytail. But the miniseries only served to set up the premise. It ended with the identity still secret, the concept still intact, not really moved down the board too much. But it also brought us a showdown with Savage Dragon, who kind of gave his reluctant stamp of approval to Shadowhawk. Now, as I mentioned, and to clarify more on this, I was put off by this miniseries. To be honest with you, I originally balked at it completely. The comic had a nice embossed silver cover, but it seemed generic. And the fact that we didn't know who was beneath the mask or why they were doing what they were doing prevented me from connecting at that time. 
To be honest with you, I got it off of a convenience store rack, went home and read it, just thought it was so lackluster I went back to the convenience store and exchanged it for another comic. Yes, you can do that if they know you by name and the comic is the same price because, well, they just don't care. At least they didn't at this time. It wasn't until later down the road that I happened to find a four-pack. I decided, well, it's cheap, I'm going to give it another shot. And this is when I got on board, I was curious again. So in the first round, not impressed. Upon revisiting, I'm intrigued enough to continue. And luckily the series did go beyond that first four issues. It continued into Shadowhawk 2. Now to address something, I mentioned the silver cover. Yes, this comic used gimmick covers. The first issue had basically an embossed cover with Shadowhawk's helmet in silver. You all remember the foil covers. Subsequent issues would have a glow-in-the-dark cover, and the first issue of Shadowhawk 2 would have this die-cut mirror cover of, Sh of Shadowhawk. Using the all-black cover, the die-cut areas revealed the silver portions of Shadowhawk's armor. While when you open that cover, the first page, where the foil is, shows a Shadowhawk symbol. I want to say that this didn't overuse the gimmick cover. I mean, it usually used it in the first issue and used a glow-in-the-dark cover, which we could have done without, but they were normally well-presented covers, which is something I appreciate. Here, they were appropriately used, they were in good taste, they didn't interfere with the reading at all. So we get to the second miniseries, which was three issues this time. This introduced a character called Hawk's Shadow, which would become, I guess, the closest thing you would have to a very arch-nemesis. Even though there would be enemies involved in the comic, this is the first one that was really personal and one-on-one. -on -one. Hawk's Shadow was a copycat vigilante who didn't just break criminals' backs, he killed them. This didn't sit well with Shadowhawk, who went out to find him, and it turns out that Hawk's Shadow has completely misread Shadowhawk's mission. Hawk's Shadow is an absolute, complete racist, so his victims are African-American. And the reason for that is he's not only psychotic and terrible, he's misinterpreted Shadowhawk's actions as only focusing on African-Americans. The anger at this revelation and this accusation forces Shadowhawk to reveal his identity, to prove how wrong Hawk Shadow is. And Shadowhawk finally reveals himself to be Paul Johnstone. Now we had seen Paul around, but he was kind of downplayed. We were really dealing with his brother Hobie. Hobie was a crack addict, Paul was more straight-laced. And unfortunately Hobie, well, got himself into trouble and passed away. So once we found out who Shadowhawk is, well, it became natural to wonder why he was there, what he was doing. This is where I really got hooked. I had given the first four issues a chance. I was just curious enough to say, I kind of want to find out how this plays out. I'll check out the second miniseries. This revelation finally had me intrigued. What also had me intrigued was the Regulators, a group of villains, including the aforementioned Blackjack. They kind of become a more regular fixture in the series, and their storyline continues not quite independent of Shadowhawks, but not contingent on it either. Shadowhawks are thrown on their side, they fight, they sometimes team up, but it turns this book into an ensemble and almost a universe amongst itself. It's not an impressive rogues gallery when you have characters called Vortex and Blackjack, but their interpersonal squabbling, and in some cases betrayals, really did propel the series forward. So by the time I got through Shadowhawk 2, Shadowhawk 3 was on its way and I was current. I was on board, I wanted to read it. Plus, the visual identity of Shadowhawk at this point had hit stride. The armor had become less bulky, sleeker, and more distinctive. Less awkward. For example, I mentioned the mask was changed to come down around Shadowhawk's chin, rather than being, well, kind of a cap. And we had moved more from street muggings into going underground and fighting monsters. And in this third miniseries, the rubber really hit the road. 
because we found out really who is Paul Johnstone. Why is he doing this? And to tell you the truth, it was where the Daredevil analog really clicked in for me. It turns out that Paul was a district attorney who had grown up in the bad part of Harlem. While his brother Hobie ended up going into drugs, inspired by his stepfather, Paul, of course, pursued law. But a group of criminals assaulted Paul. And the reason is that he refused to throw a case. He refused to let them walk. But when they assaulted him, they actually injected him with HIV-positive blood. And bear in mind, this is 1993-1994. This is before the big AIDS movement and the awareness. I mean, right now, the perception of HIV and AIDS is, well, more understanding, more compassionate. At this time, it was considered a death sentence. And that was based on the lack of education and research we had at that time. AIDS was still a fairly young virus. It still is in a lot of ways. But that perception fed into a lot of undignified behavior, inappropriate behavior, things you would not see today. For example, after Paul learns that he is infected with the HIV virus, he loses his job, which wouldn't happen today. And again, he's perceiving this as a death sentence. As such, he decided to take on some muggers. And he himself got mugged and ended up back in the hospital. Basically, you're looking at a man who reached a point where he felt like there was nothing he had left to lose. And that is where Christina Reed came in. Reed was a former police officer who, again, who was kicked off the force for using excessive violence. Reed had been working with a partner to develop an exoskeleton. And she offered Paul the chance to become Shadowhawk. Using the exoskeleton in a cocktail of drugs to extend his life. He basically trained and trained. The main point of Shadowhawk is, when he took care of criminals, it had to be permanent. And by the end of Shadowhawk 3, we had the full origin reveal. We understood who Shadowhawk is, why he's doing what he's doing, and who his accomplices were. You would think that this would be the end of the series. We understand this character, but no. This is where the series really begins, in my opinion. At this stage in the game, we had spent 11 issues over three miniseries, world-building a little bit building our characters, building our supporting cast, and introducing the main concept and the main obstacle. And along the way, just to go on a quick tangent, we had the promise of many, many other series, such as Infinity and Valentine, most of which never saw the light of day. And almost every one of them seemed derivative of another image comic. But I remember them capturing my attention, because I'm thinking we're building this world further and further out, but that's not what happened. But those are in the backs of most of the issues of Shadowhawk, and they always prove to be a curiosity. So after Shadowhawk 3, we moved into a three-issue miniseries called Images of Shadowhawk, which was to be a bit of an anthology title of other people writing and drawing Shadowhawk. And in these three issues, we had Keith Giffen filling in. Giffen had his own image title called Trencher, which was an odd, odd title, both in concept and in execution. Trencher was a bit of a spiritual assassin, in which I mean he actually hunted down wrongfully reincarnated people. And he's assisted by Phoebe, which is a voice in his head. And the three issues had Shadowhawk going against Trencher. So not only is Trencher an odd concept for Giffen, who is a very gifted artist, somebody who does fantastic things on the page, but when it comes to Trencher, it was crap. Now this is just one man's opinion, but it was a bunch of shapes, like he was attempting to emulate Batman the Animated Series but producing images that just didn't make sense. Your mileage may vary on the series, but the important thing is these three issues introduce these two characters coming against each other. And this, in turn, led to a backup story in Shadowhawk Gallery, which was a one-shot that featured pinups that had been done by other artists of Shadowhawk. 
Admittedly, most of these pinups you had in the backs of the individual issues, but I guess it's nice to see a book capturing all of these changes the focus. Now, as far as the images, they vary. Some of them are fantastic, some of them are less so. But in the back is a story called Epiprologue, in which Trencher's Phoebe, the voice in the head, decides to pop into Shadowhawk's head, and their mission? To find the cure for AIDS, to save Paul's life. Now, as a concept, that's cool. However, as a focus, it was never, let's cure AIDS for others. Let's make the world a better place. It was never that. The focus was always on curing Paul, only Paul. As if he was the only one that matters because he's a superhero. That always stuck in my craw a little bit as one of those nitpicky flaws. This isn't a perfect series, not a perfect presentation. It has a, a few places where it's, it's lacking. It's lacking focus, it's lacking direction. But after this, with that setup, we jump into Shadowhawk number 12. It just renumbers the consecutive numbering. And from Shadowhawk number 12 to 18, we followed the storyline, which the search was actually just an excuse for team-ups. Not only did we have Phoebe from Trencher, we had Shadowhawk meeting Chapel, Supreme, Wildcats, a Savage Dragon, and there were a lot of potential cures that he came across. None of them worked. And the flaw in this story idea isn't that Paul's searching for it. It's the fact that it never occurs to anybody that they haven't found the cure yet. I mean, if the Wildcats had found the cure, wouldn't they capitalize on it? Imp is a businessman. And in that instance, they actually tried to build a clone-like body, much like the character Spartan, who every time he died, his consciousness got loaded into a new cybernetic body. They tried to do that, it was rejected. If that had worked previously, if they had experimented with that previously, well, the cure would have been out there. This would have been redundant. But luckily... The story never buckles. It never lies to itself, saying this is going to have a happy ending, and it doesn't. Just to spoil the ending for you, because it's the journey, not the destination, Shadowhawk once again goes up against Hawk's shadow and defeats him, but by the time that fight is done, he's so weak that he goes into police custody and succumbs to the AIDS virus. Now this one, this final fight, is personal because Hawk's shadow is trying to attack Johnstone's mother. Again, the closest thing we have to an arch nemesis. So... With the miniseries, we have a slow establishment of who Shadowhawk is and why he does what he does. And once we hit issue 12, we have an interesting, compelling setup, just one that's not thought all the way through. Because the search for the cure is admirable, it is relevant, and if you apply it to the greater world around him, it could be a great, great heroic feat. But this was never really a character that was designed to have a happy ending. It just wasn't. It's a concept that was finite, and thankfully finite. However, that didn't stop Valentino from, well, revamping the concept. Now, I had left after this. This was the end of the story that I started. I didn't even bother looking at the Vampirilla team-up. That's right, he had a two-issue Vampirilla crossover. Because I felt, once Paul was gone from the series, there was nothing left for me. Now, reading up on what came after that, there was the concept that Shadowhawk was a spirit of vengeance of sorts that took over people. And I balked at it, it just... I might check it out later, but for me, the original Shadowhawk is the one that I read, that I enjoyed, and the concept that I felt was compelling. So now, with that concept set up, how does he compare to Daredevil? How do I get to talk about Shadowhawk on a Daredevil podcast? Most of the analogs are pretty self-explanatory. We are dealing with two men that were lawyers, as well as non-powered vigilantes, and they're both afflicted in their own ways. However, I look at Shadowhawk as more of a cautionary Daredevil tale. The main difference between these two characters is Matt has never lost faith in the law. Matt's not felt like the system has let him down completely. It's not that he's blind to the flaws, but he thinks overall there is a greater good to be done within the system as well as without. 
Unlike Paul, Matt never gave in to rage for what happened to him. Both incidents were unfair. Both men were acting heroically. Paul going by the letter of the law, making sure criminals were punished as criminals. Matt trying to save an old man from a truck. Both were injured. Both received after effects that were permanent. However, Matt never gave in to that rage. It could be said that it might have been his age. Matt was much younger than Paul was. And Matt wasn't necessarily given a death sentence. But even without age, I think the major tipping point was Matt had stick to teach him how to focus this. Where Paul, he had all the rage in the world, but he had no direction to put it until he was found by Christina. By then, the damage was done. The rage was already within him. Now, both of them came from bad parts of New York. Paul came from Harlem. Matt, of course, came from Hell's Kitchen. They both had father figures who inspired them in different ways. So it's not a direct analog, but you see the connection. So what is it that's compelling about Shadowhawk? I don't want to make it sound like Shadowhawk is completely a cautionary tale. He never crosses certain lines. There's still a heroic and noble aspect to Paul Johnstone that's never lost. If you look at the ending, he died fighting in a lot of ways. But there's also a selfish aspect. For example, when he's, again, searching for the cure to AIDS, he's not looking for it to apply worldwide. He's looking for it for himself to continue the fight. But at that same coin, even though I feel that's self-centered, it's also something you would see in Matt Murdock because Matt would never give up. Matt had a death sentence. He would not give up till the day he stops drawing breath. And in that, the two men are attached. There's a certain drive that exists between the two of them, a certain desire. Matt just has a different focus and a different direction. Basically, Matt's soul isn't crushed the way Paul's was. Now, the reason I decided to talk about it this week was I rediscovered my run of Shadowhawk. I'd been missing a couple of things, so I got those filled in. And the more I thought about it, the more I really wanted to talk about this character because it was a character that I liked a lot, much in the same way I liked Daredevil. To make a callback to the first episode, when I discovered Daredevil, none of the other kids at school knew who the heck this guy was. I mean, sure, they knew Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, but Daredevil? Who's this guy? What are you talking about? Shadowhawk was kind of the same thing. Shadowhawk, while being an Image comic, wasn't one of the big dogs. He wasn't Spawn or Youngblood or Savage Dragon. He was a lower tier Image character. And I don't say that to be negative about the character. It's just it is what it is. He wasn't the mainstream success that the others were. For example, you never saw a Shadowhawk cartoon, but yet there was a Savage Dragon cartoon, a Wildcats cartoon, Spawn cartoon on HBO. You had Wildcats figures on the shelf as well as, well, of course, McFarlane figures, but much like Daredevil, he was a second stringer. And maybe I do have an affinity for second stringers, I don't know. But it always endeared that to me, that Shadowhawk was, you know, he sold enough to get by, but never topped the charts. Maybe for me, it's just a matter of I like that underdog hero who faces big danger, takes risks to do the right thing. I'm drawn to that type of character. So when you take their similarities and their differences, the big question is always going to be, how would a crossover or fight occur between these two? Well, I'm glad you asked that. More than likely, I would be pitched that the two of them knew each other in law school. Matt hears about some of the misfortune Paul's had and tries to help him out. But the Kingpin finds out that, well, Paul put some of his people behind bars and still has some of that evidence. So Kingpin goes after Paul while Matt's trying to help. The two costume up and they get confused, thinking one another is attacking. And Matt realizes it's Paul in the armor because he hears the heartbeat. The two team up and fight Kingpin, who sicks arson on them. And of course, they're victorious. They have a begrudging respect. 
but Matt tries to get Paul to follow a stricter regimen of not shattering the backs of his foes. Which brings the two of them back into conflict. They can't partner up, but Matt really can't pursue because ideologically, what Paul is doing isn't killing, it's permanently disabling. Basically, whatever way you want to spin it, Matt would, and I'm spitballing here, so bear with me. However you'd like to spin it, Daredevil can't be friends or crime-fighting buddies with Paul, but he can't bring Paul in either. It's another one of those tough decisions. And in other aspects, Daredevil and Shadowhawk are somewhat alike in terms of merchandise. There's just not as much merchandise as you would see with other mainstream compatriots. For example, there's less Daredevil, more Spider-Man. More Spawn, less Shadowhawk. However, Shadowhawk has had a few rounds. He had a full trading card set from Comic Images, which means they basically just printed panels and put them on a trading card, and there you go. McFarlane Toys made a couple of Shadowhawk figures. One, the original, through the Spawn line, was absolutely terrible. It was a terrible figure. There's no way around it. It resembled the character, but the armor had a lot more unnecessary detail and a lot of just accoutrements, just weapons. The claws on his wrists, which were normally brass knuckles with a few sharp objects on them, were put in as Wolverine claws. It was not a good figure. And it was made even worse with a variant with a gold repaint. Ugh. It just didn't look good. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. Now, McFarlane did come back and make a 10th anniversary Shadowhawk action figure, which action figure is a little loose in this stage. It's more like a slightly articulated plastic statue. Now, this one did look like Shadowhawk. It looks gorgeous. He's standing in a pose that would be familiar. Arms up, ready for a fight. This one I like. I haven't gotten it yet, but I want it, and I eventually will get it. Just not really a priority. And more recently, there was a Shadowhawk figure made for the Indie Spotlight Comic Book Heroes line, which was much more articulated and looked really, really good. In fact, there are two versions of it. One is the more traditional silver armor with a snap-on grappling hook. The other is the later edition, which included the helmet, but removed the silver armor. Again, not my cup of tea. I had already followed that up to the point I was interested in. But the Indie Heroes Comic Spotlight figure is gorgeous, and I do definitely plan on getting that in the near future, along with the Dick Tracy figure they produced. This show has nothing to do with Dick Tracy, but I thought I'd mention that's out there, just in case. You can also get a really good articulated tip figure, but, but, let me move on. I think when I revisited these issues, they brought back a period in comics where I wasn't a collector per se, I was kind of one foot in, I was on my way out at the same time, but there were certain comics I still sought out just for pure reading enjoyment, and this was definitely one of them. At about 1516, this was a guilty pleasure. It wasn't, quote-unquote, the trendy image book, but it was my image book. And it still has a nice chunk of personal space in my heart. Now, lest you think I have spoiled this story for you and you have no need to seek it out, think again. Because it is, indeed, a journey and not a destination. Thank you, Aerosmith. But I think if you like Daredevil, especially during the 90s, which was very much hit and miss, but if that material really appealed to you and that was your era... Take a look at Shadowhawk. Most of the time you can find these inexpensively in back-issue bins. Look, it's it's not literature. It's not Edgar Allan Poe. It's not even mind-blowingly great comics. But it's fun. Comics should always be fun. You should enjoy yourself when reading comics. There should be some appeal to it. So if you just want a nice, inexpensive afternoon read, seek out Shadowhawk. But I've rambled enough about a character that's not Daredevil, so I'm going to bring it in for a close. I want to thank you for putting up with my off-the-cuff talk about Shadowhawk. I know I actually enjoyed myself quite a bit. I don't know how often I'll do these complete impromptu off-the-cuff episodes. 
So once again, thank you for listening. I'm going to be back in seven short days with a new episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, the kind of man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. There's devil fight for what is right. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his sadness and fight the Tonight, they're there for fun.